as we open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. And we will be considering now, uh, specifically today, verse 4. We will be mentioning at times the uh, preceding, I'm sorry, the following verses, 5 through 13, but we're really not going to get down into those. We're just going to really hunker down today at uh, verse 4 as we continue our study here of what I would describe that's really being dealt with in chapter 1 as the universal lordship of the Son, the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. And as you see in your sermon notes today, we're going to be dealing largely with the Son, Jesus' superiority, His lordship to the angels. The Son's superiority to the angels. And so to get us started here, let us just read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll consider how we're going to unpack the text that's before us today. Hear the word of the Lord. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Father in heaven, we come before you now and we ask your humble and kind blessings upon us as we seek to unfold this marvelous text, this marvelous witness, testimony, divine revelation of who the Son Jesus Christ is, particularly in relationship to some of the most glorious beings in all of creation, and that is the angels. May you, O Lord, in your kindness to us today, sear upon our conscience, inflame within our hearts, just a glorious, exalted view of who the Son is as standing far superior to all of creation, even that of these glorious angels, which we will consider today. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for just bringing us here today. Be with those who are not with us today. May you minister to them in spirit and truth wherever they find themselves. Bring comfort to those who are sick And Lord, needing a touch from you to be, uh, Lord, restored unto health. And Lord, we now seek to stand in the shadow of the cross of Christ so that he may receive all the honor and the glory of what is said and done in our remaining time together. Blessed be the name of Jesus in whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I think you all would agree who have had any uh, connection with uh, modern, postmodern American culture, uh, especially within the last couple centuries, that angels have really had their heyday in our culture. You know, um, I know probably some of you are familiar with some of the popular television shows. I know I remember some growing up, uh, Touched by an Angel, uh, Highway to Heaven. There was the angel who you know, wore a leather jacket and went around and, and helped people and, and did these types of things. Um, get on the internet for very long, don't encourage you to do this, and you start looking into societies that uh, teach about angels and uh, want to, you know, uh, have theories about angels. Uh, I, I didn't even do the, the research in my preparation for my sermon today. I didn't feel it was really all that necessary, but I'm sure I could go to Pure Flicks and there's some shows on there that are dealing with angels' lives and the lives of, you know, the world and things of that nature. And angels have, over the centuries, uh, not just in 
the Jewish tradition, but even in pagan tradition, uh, been an integral part of certain mythologies, uh, certain beliefs, and just general spiritualism. And they definitely have had a resurgency, you could say, in the last couple of centuries, even amongst Christians. And while angels certainly do, don't they have their place in the Bible, angels certainly we're going to see today have a unique role in being messengers used by God of divine revelation. They are never, as we will come to the conclusion today, ever, ever to be given in any way, shape, or form uh, more of our time, more of our steadier interest than the sun. All right? Uh, The theme really for today is that the sun has lordship over the angels. The sun is preeminently more exalted than any angel. And so what the writer of Hebrews wants to do today is as he's drawn their focus prior to Christ's revelation being superior to previous divine revelations, he wants to still build upon that, okay, in showing us that Christ's revelation is even more superior to the angels. But it's interesting that he even brings up the angels. And so I propose to you how we go into this text is just trying to ascertain what is the fact that's being asserted in verse 4. What's he really just saying right out the gate about the Son in comparison to the angels? And then, I believe it would be beneficial to ask ourselves, why is he even comparing them to the angels? Why does the angels even come up in this discussion about the Son and about His Word? And so I propose to you that that's just simply how we go through the text is, we first try to grapple with what he actually is asserting, the statement, the fact that he's asserting, and then ask ourselves or answer the question, why are the angels even being brought up? And then in the remaining verses, 5 through 13, we'll see after answering that questions of why the angels are brought up, what the inspired writer does is he uses the Old Testament to support this truth that he's asserting in verse 4. So what is the the fact? What what is the the claim? What is the teaching that the writer is trying to assert? He spent much time in verse number 1 and 2 demonstrating that how God in the time past has spoken by the prophets. He has given us divine revelation and guidance as His people in the Old Testament through the prophets. But in the last days, through the Messiah has spoken through the Son. And then in the latter half of verse number 2, all the way through verse 3, what was he doing? He was trying to exalt within their minds that the Son was eternal. He was God of God, light of light. Of course, his revelation, of course, the finality of what he was to teach, what he was to reveal for, for God was certain and true. It was, you could say, a bookend to what the prophets had taught. But now he goes into these angels. And, and he says in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The first fact that he's claiming is that the Son is much better than the angels. Well, let's consider that for a minute. Let's consider that claim that he's making. That they're made, that the Son is being made so much better than the angel. Look at your sermon notes, because some of your translations have it, the authorized version says being made. Some of them have it having become, so he became. And this is a good translation. The, 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 I, I like the translation having become. Because it fits more with what is going on in the Greek from verse 3. The Son, having purged our sins, finished that work upon the cross, sitting down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made, having become so much better than the angels. It's by the virtue of who the Son is, and in verse 3, what He's done, what He's accomplished in His earthly ministry within creation that he has become much better than the angels. In the context of verses 1 through 4, 
the writer, the inspired writer by the Hebrews has already laid stress on the superior revelation of the Son. But now, by teaching us in verse number 3, that the incarnate eternal Son of God has accomplished His redemptive work on the cross, it's intrinsically necessary for us to understand that by that work is what's being stressed in this being made or having become. What's being stressed is it's by that work He has been or has become, has taken a place much better than the angels. While the Son's eternal divine superiority does have its place in a conversation about the Son. This is in the context of verses 1 through 4. Verses 2, verses 3 is establishing His divine eternal Sonship that does have a place. Here in this phrase, having uh, being made or having become the inspired writer at this point, He's wanting to especially emphasize the Son's superiority over the angels by virtue of His role in the New Covenant of sacrificing Himself and purging His people of their sins. This work of redemption mentioned in verse 3, we know from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it involved the eternal Son being momentarily made lower than the angels. Hebrews 2, 9. And it was as if it were that by the incarnate eternal Son's birth, His death and resurrection, the writers wanting us to see here that Nolan, the Son's fullest glory, the Son's most imminent display of all that He is can truly be made known. Beloved, the angels were not privy to the eternal decrees of God. If they were, they would be what? Omniscient. They would know all things. So in that sense, in that triune eternal counsel of the real glory and the real power that the eternal Son possessed was only known within the triune Godhead. And it wasn't until the Son comes into creation, the angels hanging on the edge of their seats, wondering how this is all going to turn out. Did they witness on that resurrection day, Brother Scott, how that the Son was much better than any one of them, even one of the most eminent angels of all of Scripture, Michael. You see, whereas in eternity past, we know from the book of Job, Lucifer was a glorious, uh, uh, I'll go as far as saying, very knowledgeable, very powerful angel. He could never compare to the Son. On his best day. Sorry, Lucifer, I got bad news for you. You can't even match one iota of the Son's glory and the power. And his death, his burial, and his victorious resurrection should have been a spotlight on the infirmity, on the inferiority of Lucifer and all of the other angels. And to the good angels, not the fallen ones. Oh, beloved. They did stand in awe, if I may use sanctified imagination for a moment, and witness the glory of the Son on that day. And they said, true it is, He is much better than us. He is much better than us. While we will learn when we get there at the end of this chapter in verse 14, that they do play an important role. Angels are good, the good angels. Uh, Not the fallen ones, the demons. The the good angels are good and they are useful instruments in the hands of a kind, a gracious, providential Savior such as Christ doing His bidding. They do minister to us. By what we learned in verse 3, they could never minister to the heirs of salvation the way that the Son did by purging us of our sins. And so, 
the fact asserted that he is much better than the angels is intimately connected with his exalted new covenant revelation of his person, his purpose, his priority in verse number three. You see that? That's why, no, the writer can say that. After saying and nailing this down, this new covenant revelation of the Son coming into this time, space, and history and doing this work, oh, he's asserting he is much better than the angels. Well, he asserts something else. Let's, as we're trying to still wrap our minds around what is exactly a full understanding of the claim and the fact that's being asserted. Well, he definitely claims and, and definitely states, and I would wholeheartedly agree from what we understand, verses 1 through 3, that the Son, Jesus, is much better than the angels. And He has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name. He claims that Jesus, by virtue of who He is and what He's done, that He's obtained a better name. A better name. And so let's consider the Son's name for a moment. The name here isn't clearly revealed, is it? At this point, we haven't even heard the name Jesus in this text. The name here is not clearly stated. And while it is always proper to speak of Jesus' eternal sonship, verses 1-3, through when we speak today of what the Son has, quote, become, and by saying that He, quote, obtained a name, the inspired writer especially wants to point out the significant contribution that his crosswork played in understanding the name, even though we're not told the name yet. In other words, as you see in your notes, the excellency of the name Son that he's been referred to so far. So far we just know Jesus as Son here. Okay, The excellency of the name Son, it carries with it not only the rightful rank of his royalty, which is established in the preceding verses, eternally begotten, things of that nature, right? But it's also that of an identity, his name's son, connected to accomplishing the foretold promises of the Messiah. Now this is in perfect harmony with the very Greek word that's used in translated name. Look in your sermon notes. The Greek word carries with it the idea of a proper name given. And so, his name that he received by inheritance, verses 1 and 2, he was appointed to be the heir of all things. This name is the proper name for him. We already looked at how the name the Son carries with it that he shares as he comes forth from the Father all divine essence that the Father possesses. He doesn't lack one ounce of the divinity of the Father. He doesn't have in any need or is in short hand of anyhow any power outside of himself. That's why we looked at last week, he upholds all things by his own power, right? So in the Greek, the word, the name son, it does carry with it the proper designation and name of who his being is. But it also carries with it, you see, the cause or the reason one is named. The cause or the reason one is named. And so the Son, His name, carries with it, yes, these immeasurable, unfathomable descriptions of His divine being that we cannot even but barely wrap our minds around. But it also has in it that beautiful element, Abby, of what He did in creation. Well, what did He do? What did He do? In my research of studying how angels influence different uh, false religions in our age, I come across this blog of the Muslims talking about the angel Gabriel and his role in the beginning of Islam. And you won't read Muslims very long before you see how they view the cross. They view the cross as weak. How could God allow a bunch of Jews, they said. You know, they don't like the Jews. How could they allow the despicable Jews to kill their God? Oh, but Abby, they miss the whole point, don't they? The divine, powerful Son of all glory, He chose to come and condescend down to man, to lowly earth, and allow Himself voluntarily to be sacrificed. 
His name is the proper designation of who He is. Oh, but His name that He obtained because of the cross work by inheritance. Some commentators believe that in the, God, in the, in the book or the letter to Romans, this Greek word that's translated inheritance also carries with it He was manifested to be. So He had always purposed eternally to be this One who would do this work in His being to receive and obtain this glorious name known as the Son. Now, we'll have more of these sorts of thoughts when we begin to unpack verses 5-13 through of this connection of His name and His relationship with the Father and the work that He accomplished as being all evidence of His inheritance of why He is made more supreme than the angels. But let us at this point at least just recognize minimally that in the following Old Testament quotations that are provided for us in the remaining of this chapter, He the Son is identified in verse 8 as the Son. We learned about that in verse number 2 in its fullest extent. He is referred to as God in verse 8. He is referred to as Lord in verse 10. And thus with all these divine designations, we can safely conclude that this more excellent name Beloved, it is not so much a single word. It's not so much a single name that you can write down. But rather, it encompasses the characteristics of the eternal divine Son incarnate as a man and glorified as the sacrificed and risen Messiah. The name Son carries with it all of that. All of that. There are some who believe that in the book of Revelation, uh, the name that no one knows could possibly be the name that no one knows it's being referred here. But the problem with that interpretation is the fact that remember who um, the inspired writer of Hebrews is talking to. He's talking to people who don't have the book of Revelation. right? He's talking to people that would have understood what he was referring to, which comes out in verses 5-13. through 13, where We'll get more into the inheritance and the meaning of his name and how it demonstrates that Jesus the Son is superior to all of the angels. And so I'm presenting to you that the name... Or the, the, the name of the Son is exactly the one that's ex- being exalted in their view that should be held over all of creation as that which is more excellent and that which He obtained, not by who He is just in His own divine being, but intimately connected to what He did upon the cross. Such a name, beloved, no created angel could ever lay claim to, could they? Sure, there are the names of Gabriel in the Bible. And of course, there is the name of Michael. But these names the writer is wanting to nail down in the thoughts and the minds of these early Christians are all inferior names when compared to that name of Son. The Son. Well, the fact asserted. Jesus, by His exalted work in the New Covenant, is what? Better than the angels. Jesus, by who He is and what He has done, has as Son a better name than any of the angels. But let us move on to our second heading and ask the question, why in the world are we even talking about angels? That's a fair question, right? In verse 1, we understood, didn't we, the comparison of the Son to the prophets. Why? Well, because it was necessary to establish in the minds of these early Hebrews who were converted unto the faith that while in ages past the revelation of God by His chosen prophets was to be their trusted mouthpiece, their trusted guide, their comfort in the trials and the the, the, the non-understandings of what was going on around them. In like fashion, however, all together in a different way, we learn in verse 1 that His Son in a greater, a more fuller and certain final revelation, had been granted to them by God. We we, we understood why there was a comparison being made. This is why God, or this is the manner in which God spoke to them in the past through the prophets. Oh, and guess what? The Son now, He is speaking to you uh, finally and more clearly and certainly. And so the comparison of the Son to the prophets, 
in connection with divine revelation is by us understandable. But why here the comparison of the Son to the angels? Well, I give you two reasons in your sermon notes of why I think this is the case. The first is that the inspired writer is employing a literary and structural device to begin to transition from one thought and begin to transition and go into another thought. Okay? First, let us consider this, that the introduction of the angels will be used to set up the very first warning that the inspired writer gives to this early church. And it's in chapter 2, verse 2. You can just look down in your Bible there. Starting with verse 4, the introduction of the angels, and then going all the way through the chapter, he applies all of that consideration and comparison of the Son to the angels this way. Chapter 2, verse 2. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, here's the warning, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, the Son? Well, he's beginning here in chapter 1, verse 4, bringing up the angels, to start to shift and transition to a thought that he's going to apply in, in verse number 2. Okay, But notice, very importantly, it's not altogether out of place. Because we're going to see in a moment the reason he's talking about this is because he's still in the context of showing that ultimate authoritative divine revelation is in the Son. Not the prophets. And now he's going to use the angels. And then at the end, he's transitioning away from the importance of the Son's final divine revelation as being authoritative to the life of God's people. And then he's going to start transitioning into how the Son is a better priest. Right? So chapter 1 is largely dealing with his universal lordship, his universal authority in divine revelation being the final word from the Father. And then he goes into chapter 2 and forward and starts talking about other elements of the Son. And so this is really kind of a transitional thought or literary structural employment by the writer to move away from how he has divine final authority revelation to more other aspects of his character and attributes. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing here. Well, there's another reason. Um, because it is, it's, of course, much more than just a literary uh, you know, device to begin a transition in a letter. Um, the other advice I'd give you that, that he's doing this is to continue to build upon the theme that the Son is superior in his revelation, as I just mentioned. Consider this. If we accept that those to whom this letter was addressed were in fact Hebrews who were converted to Christianity and as this message or this letter repeats a lot of times were in danger of slipping into some sort of refined Judaism. If that's true, um, then it was necessary for the writer to further establish in their minds that the Son's revelation was to be regarded above all other revelations, especially that of the angels. Okay, So, yes, it's a shift in the thought. It's a way to employ and transition the letter into another thought to be applied in chapter 2, verse 2. But it's still very important that the writer wants to convince them that the Son's revelation is that which is to be authoritative. And that's why he brings it to the angels. Now, what are angels you see in your sermon notes there? Uh, in the Greek, it really carries with it just the idea, no matter what you think in your head about angels, as we talked about earlier, how they've been uh, portrayed in Western culture or even all around the world in traditions, they are messengers who are sent from God. They are messengers sent from God. Okay, that's fine. And we understand that the writer wants to use angels in comparison to the Son to demonstrate the Son is far more superior than them in His revelation. So how is He going to do that? And why is He still bringing up the angels? Why would they think that the angels or the Son... I'm sorry, why would they think or be prone to think perhaps that the Son was not more divine in His revelation or that His revelation wasn't as final than the angels? 
Um, little Hannah, what was it that in this first century church, these Hebrews who had been converted to Christianity, what was it that would have made them possibly entertain uh, the wrong idea that angels still had some sort of influence or revelation in their lives that would be more important or equal with that of Jesus? Well, that's what we need to consider now. There's pretty much two prominent views of why the inspired writer is using angels here. One is, is because this first century group of Hebrews who had converted to Christianity would have had some connection or had been influenced by an ancient community known as the Essenes who lived by the Dead Sea um, in a community called Qumran. There is, so let's consider that first, there is probability that these early Hebrews would have been acquainted with another Hebrew community known as the Qumran community and or religious sect which consisted of a people known as the Essenes. So who are the Essenes, briefly? And we'll apply it here in a moment. Well, the Essenes during the Second Temple period, they were part of many religious groups who were... Um, akin to aesthetic lifestyles. They had some elements of mysticism in their beliefs. They had very peculiar messianic views uh, of the end times. And during the Second Temple period, the Essenes being part of these groups that broke out of the main, you could say, stream of Judaism, they were the largest, the Essenes. The Essenes were living all throughout cities in Judea, but particularly by the shores of the Dead Sea, which is a strong indication that they were the very ones who hid the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest ancient copies of Scripture that we have. The Essenes, as I alluded to, they renounced all wealth, they renounced material comforts, and they elected to live in a communal life amongst themselves and complete asceticism cut off from the world. They rejected the ways of the two larger denominations of the Jewish people at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they saw themselves as the true inheritors of the Sadducean priestly traditions. What's all that mean? That means that here you have some super serious Jews who are looking at the other Jewish denominations and saying, y'all ain't really serious enough. We're going to withdraw over here and we're going to live out as the true Sadducean priestly tradition, the real faith of the Jews. Okay, And they were the largest sect of these different type of splinter groups that came out of Judaism. So they are, you could say, for those who are learning of the things of God, who are being drawn to God, someone in the marketplace, on the internet, on the highways and the byways of life, I know they didn't have internet, you get the point here though, that you would have crossed paths with, right? And so when you crossed paths with them, they would have said, oh, let me show you from the scriptures how this is true and how that's true. You know, they would have grabbed the Torah, they would have grabbed the Old Testament scriptures, and they would have been very zealous to have you invite you over for dinner and explain to you that their anti-Messianic views and understanding and their aesthetic lifestyles was what the scriptures taught. Well, with all of that said, it is very probable in understanding why the, the thought of the angels is even coming up, that these early Hebrew Christians would have been acquainted with these people, perhaps had family members, perhaps met them, worked with some of them, so forth and so on. What's that got to do with angels? Well, the Essenes, who made up the Qumran community, had as their messianic and eschatological theology a teaching that there would actually be two messiahs. There would come a kingly messiah, who would be subordinate to another man who was going to serve as the priestly Messiah. And these two human messiahs who were going to come through, of course, they believed the line of David, they both would be subordinate on the reign of earth under an angel. And his name was Michael. Michael. Michael the archangel. Thus, some believe that against this sort of backdrop, 
the inspired writer of Hebrews needed to affirm and demonstrate that Christ the Son as the true Messiah held supremacy over all the angels, even Michael the archangel. I think that there's some probability of that, but I'm not convinced that's the case. And the reason is, is because it just... We don't have anything in the text that tells us they were falling into the air, all right? And we don't need anything in the text to tell us that. Because I think that the second reason to answer a question of why these being compared to the angel answers it more naturally. The connection or the influence of angels in divine revelation throughout redemptive history. That's enough proof in and of itself to now for the writer to take the Son, who's been exalting as the final word of God's revelation, and say, let's compare him to the angels. It didn't matter if they had any influence or contact with the Qumran community or this theory of the Messianic age being under the headship of the, uh, Michael the Archangel. So let's consider just the general connection or influence of angels in divine revelation, as that's the reason why that the writer is comparing the Son to angels. While the Essenes could have influenced the thinking of these early Hebrew Christians regarding the proper role of the Son in connection with angels relevant to the Messiah's work in the end times, we have a clue, I believe, in the text itself that has a much more simple and reasonable solution to our question of why he's being compared to the angels. And it comes in chapter 2, verse 2. So we were just there. The writer makes mention of the word spoken by angels being steadfast. This phrase, the word spoken by angels being steadfast, is a reference to five places in the Bible where angels have a direct word in divine revelation of the giving of the law. That's what this is referring to. How do we know that? Well, the Bible teaches us this. So the angels we will see have had a very intimate, a very unique role of being used by God in a very glorious way to communicate His revelation to all of mankind, but in particular His people. That's what we're about to see. And I propose to you that after we see this, the question is answered quite naturally of why it was necessary for the writer to compare the Son as being superior. Now, there's five places in the Bible where the angels have a very unique and an important role in revelation. There's two places in the Old Testament, and there's three places in the New Testament. I've given them all to you in your notes that you can track along. The first occurs, as you see in Deuteronomy 33.2, where the angels are used by God to communicate divine revelation. The Bible says that the word came from Sinai. So here's the context of the Ten Commandments, the law given on Mount Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and He came with ten thousands of saints. From His right hand went a fiery law to them. Here we see, in some way, shape, or form, there is a connection of what's being, of what's being referred to by Moses as inspired by the Spirit of ten thousands of saints. Well, that's referring to angels and we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture here in a minute. But at least at this point, we can at least see that the angels were used and would have been in the conscience of this original audience and in, in throughout all of their tradition as being glorious beings intimately and importantly used by God to communicate divine revelation. So David makes the second Old Testament reference, as you see in your notes, to angels in connection with what we learned in Deuteronomy. Inspired by the Spirit, David says in Psalms 80, 68, 17, quote, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Here the inspired psalmist tells us that 20,000, even thousands of angels, Moses referenced tens of thousands, But like Moses, David is emphasizing this impressiveness, this awesomeness, this uniqueness that angels have in divine revelation, isn't he? They were there on Mount Sinai being described uh, by Moses as a fiery law coming out. The old Septuagint describes it as lightning. The psalmist's reference notice to angels makes it clear that the saints 
or you could say the holy ones in Hebrew, in Deuteronomy 33.2, are angels. They were angels. The first believer in the New Testament as referring to angels at Sinai being used to communicate divine revelation. Again, we're trying to just build up this idea. This is, this is how they viewed angels. This is the important role and unique role that angels had in revelation in the minds of these Hebrews. Ever since they were little ones, they're taught this. The first martyr, Stephen, you have there in Acts 7.53, as he is really disputing with the religious leaders at that time as the great first Christian apologist. Uh, I don't know if I would say he was the first, but he was definitely among the first. As part of his defense before the Sanhedrin, what's he say? Notice in Acts 7.53. He said, and he charged the Jews that they had received the law by the disposition, could also be translated as ordinance, they received the law by the disposition of angels and they had not kept it. Beloved, here we learn now that the angels were not only present at Mount Sinai, but also that they had a role in actually communicating the law to Moses. That's what the word disposition means. Translated ordinance means a decree of something to follow. So while Deuteronomy in the book of Psalms places them in the presence of the law and the revelation given, now we see from Stephen that they actually communicated the law to Moses. They revealed the law on behalf of God to Moses. Paul, in our next example, you have in your notes from Galatians 3.19, was battling against the Judaizers. And he provides the fourth biblical reference to angels at Mount Sinai to give us a clue of how they were used in Revelation. He says that the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And the word rendered ordained here has the same Greek root as that which is translated as disposition. So it could be ordained, meaning they were it was it was it was it was dispensed by the angels is what that's teaching finally we have in our text today something really unique in hebrews 2 2 it tells us doesn't it not just that the law was given in the presence of angels deuteronomy and psalms or that it was conveyed in an orderly way and dispensed through angels, Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19. But the law was actually spoken by the angels to Moses. Look at your Hebrews 2.2. The inspired writer says, the word spoken by angels was steadfast. And if you look up the word spoken in the Greek, it does mean verbal speaking. Prior to looking at that, you like me, probably thought to yourself, Mount Sinai, Moses receiving the law, there were three parties involved. God to Moses, Moses to the people, right? Isn't that how you kind of always thought about it? But we see at this point, as we're seeking to amplify the importance in this original audience's mind of the role of angels in Revelation, we see that there were four parties involved. It was God to the angels, Angels to Moses, Moses to the people. There were four. That was the immense, unique, important role of angels in the hand of God as agents of divine revelation. We're hovering around this question. Why is he comparing the sun to the angels? (laughs) Now you see why. Right? However, while our understanding of this divine chain of revelation is somewhat fine-tuned now by Scripture, it still is not entirely complete. Why? Because remember what we learned last week in verse 3? In that phrase describing the Son and His unique work in providence where it says, and upholding all things by the word of His power. Remember what that entailed? It meant all things. Whatever the Father decreed, the Son spoke and it was done. Therefore, accordingly, 
we must fine-tune and add one more link in our chain of divine revelation and understanding in, the, in connection with angels, that it's more biblical. And it goes something like this. There is the triune God, the author of all of the law, communicates unto the appointed Son. The appointed Son. And the appointed Son then communicates to the angels, His agents, His instruments, His arms, which He directs, which He commands, which He rules. They communicate to Moses. Moses communicates to the people. This short little exercise of the unique role of the angels in divine revelation connected with the law is just a small sampling of what we call angelology. Angelology, that's just the studies you see in your notes of the theology of angels. If we had more time, and I would encourage you to do this, you could further investigate the Scripture's witness of angels And you would see that they are connected with some of the most key events all throughout redemptive history. We see in Job 38.7, their connection with creation. We see in Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, their connection with the birth of Jesus. We're reading through Matthew uh, right now, and, and we'll get to that here very soon in our scripture readings of Matthew. We see their intimate connection with the resurrection of Christ. And 2 Thessalonians 1.7 teaches us their unique role and connection with the Lord's second coming. Well then, how does all of this play into answering our question, why the comparison of the Son to the angels after that long, exasperating exercise? Well, very naturally and quite simply this as we're coming to concluding, I think, our thoughts. I don't even think we should get, start getting into chapter or verse 5 today. Here's, here's, here, here it is. In the Jewish tradition, angels were above all other agents, God's most glorious and closest, you could say to the purity and the truth of what God wanted communicated, much more superior than the human prophets. You you can kind of see that, right? On Mount Sinai and all that glorious display and et cetera, et cetera. Their witness and revelation from God was that which was, as our inspired writer says today, a steadfast word. And thus, this original audience, having that understanding of angels and their connection with divine revelation, it was of paramount importance that our inspired writer of Hebrews remove any suspicion from the minds of these early Christians that the incarnate Son in human form, who, yes, was made a little lower than the angels, was beyond a shadow of a doubt still immeasurably greater than the angels who He, the Son, had created and ruled over. How could you begin, little ones in the church, how could you begin to describe something that's immeasurable? I've heard some men try to describe this in a way that you could take a little caterpillar. Nay, nay, we were out in the, the front yard and she had a little, it was microscopic caterpillar on her hand and it's crawling out. I thought it was really cool and she's freaking out, you know, ah, daddy, get it off. Well, that little bitty microscopic caterpillar, the distance between that and an angel, the angel of Michael the archangel, That distance, take that, infinitely is the distance between Michael the archangel and the sun. That's the best illustration I can give of what the the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate here in all of that exposition of angels and their role in divine revelation. Oh yes, they were used and greatly used of God. But what he's saying here, first century Christians, today's Christians... Please understand the Son is immeasurably greater than any of the angels. Though through revealed history and their Jewish tradition, angels were used by God to reveal divine things superior to that of God's chosen human prophets, the Son was never in their minds and should never be today be confused as being on the same level at all with spiritual angels. No, no, no. 
He was the Creator, verse 2, of the angels. And it is they who they bow, it is they who, who bow to Jesus and worship and obey His words. Well, where does the rubber meet the road, as you see in those? How do we I think we've successfully got some glimpse of the purpose of why the writer is comparing the Son to the angels to again manifold His universal Lordship and how that we can trust the words and the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and what He revealed. Read the Gospels. And then His uh, apostles who were taught directly by Him have established it, the writer of Hebrews is going to say uh, here later on in his message. And we have inherited, the Jude said, this, this great faith from our fathers. Um, beloved, how does all this apply? Well, first of all, let it be said of us, as you see in your sermon notes, that we are always more eminently preoccupied with the Son than we are created angels. Listen, guys, if you want to have little created angels and, and stuff like that, you know, and, 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 and you know, if you want an air freshener that looks like an angel, if you want a bumper stick, okay, that's all great and dandy. But you get the point of what's being communicated here today, right? Oh, let a knowledge of the Son, let the worship of the Son, let our time, our energy, and our effort be consumed with the Son more than the trivial angels. Well, they have a role, yes. Understand their role, fix their role in redemptive history. Oh, but be focused more on the Son, as I think just a, a balanced admonition that we can give ourselves. Living in a milieu of modern spiritualisms, right? that wants to just make much about spiritual things and angels to the degree, not always, but to the degree of minimizing a focus on our simple obedience to the Son. Now, here's where you see in the last two points of application, this has some serious impact. And it deals with, first of all, the Mormon church. The church of what they call themselves of Latter-day Saints. The Mormons, beloved, have been on a great campaign over the last five to ten years. Their campaign has largely been or could be described as rearranging their language about Jesus to such a degree that any evangelical who holds to the biblical doctrine of Jesus that we have been expounding over the last six weeks, could almost not perceive the difference, Nolan. If you go right now and you start, I'm not encouraging anyone to do this, but if you were to go to read some of their propaganda and their material, beloved, I'm telling you, it's polished very, very good. They will say He is the eternal Son of God. They will say that He is of the Father. I mean, they use all of the language. But they hold a doctrine. The more you dig in their encyclopedias, the more you dig into their catechisms, the more you dig into their teachings. Let us be clear. They hold a doctrine that places angels and the Son as beings, spiritual beings, who have both existed from all eternity and only by eternal progression, that's a doctrinal phrase they use, Jesus has in time superpassed His eternal angel peers. That's the best way to phrase their teaching. The other angels are just lesser, not as progressive angels than Jesus. And this is why they can refer to Jesus as being the elder brother of the angel Lucifer. That's how they can be justified in doing that. So their theology of eternal beings and through time can become God Himself through progression of more knowledge. I, I, I don't know exactly how they arrived at that point. But you see, the point is, ultimately, that whenever a Mormon comes to you and wants to talk to you, where are you going to go in the Bible? You don't have to be, Abby, uh, uh, an apologist, for say, like a trained apologist, like some of the ones, you know, that we hear about in the church that, praise be to God, they're very good, you know, just defending the faith. And it, Listen, I want to encourage you, beloved, 
then all you have to do is turn to the book of Hebrews. Everything we've been talking about for the last six weeks, all you have to do is go to Hebrews and talk about the superiority of the Son in divine revelation, the superiority of the Son of the prophets, and the superiority of the Son, as we've described today, to the angels. And they cannot refute that without saying this book is not true. In the moment that they take the truth and the authority of God's divine Word off their mantle and place it to the side, immediately you know you're dealing with a false prophet. Immediately. So, what we've learned today, as we, I hope and pray, are not all wrapped up in angelology and you know the worship of angels and all that, um, we may say, you know, how is this really going to help us apply? Well, now you see how it does. Because the Mormons are very, very busy of painting themselves and trying to blend in with evangelicalism and be accepted and deemed as Christians. No, no, no. Don't you dare dethrone the glory of the Son in that way as making Him somehow or equal with the angels. Do you see how serious this is? How serious when a Mormon says they're a Christian and we give them the idea that they're a Christian and we don't, according to Galatians 6.1, correct them. Actually, that's a misapplication of Galatians 6.1. In so much as they hold to that doctrine, they are not a brother in Christ. They are a false prophet. And they need to be rebuked. They need to be told the truth of the Son, called to repentance, called to faith. What about Jehovah's Witnesses for our last application? I know I'm getting a little winded here. Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, they come to our doors often and frequently, don't they? How are you going to answer them? You only got one conversation you need to have with Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door. Okay? Say, wait right here. Just let them stay at the door. Go get your Bible. Open it up to Hebrews chapter 1. Read verses 1 through 4. And don't get out of verses 1 through 4. Don't let them go anywhere else. Make them answer the question. Is Jesus an angel? Or is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? That's the question. Jehovah's Witnesses, you see in your notes, they hold a doctrine. They haven't changed. Nothing's changed much, folks. They hold a doctrine that the Son is not the appointed Son, who, as verse 2 in Hebrews teaches us, has created all things. But rather, they teach He, the Son, is the first creation of Jehovah which is the angel, the angel Mark, uh, Michael. And they believe that the angel Michael lowered himself as a man for the purpose of redemption, and at his resurrection, only his spirit, Michael's spirit, not his body, was raised to the glory, back to his status of the angel Michael. And someday, Archangel Michael will come again. And that's going to be the end of times. This is in a nutshell what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. So, beloved, at the end of the message here today and all this discussion about the Son's superiority of the angels, we see that there are some practical applications, don't we? But beside those, as we're approaching the Lord's Supper, oh, just like last week, guys, doesn't this just humble us? Humble us to know that the Son actually saw us, chose us, died for us, called us. This is what's in the Lord's Supper. It's what is betrayed. And doesn't it put a little fire in your bones? Amen. To be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Because they're creeping and crawling all around us, beloved, wanting to dethrone this image of Jesus. They go by different names. As I refer to the Muslims, they believe that Gabriel gave the message to uh, Muhammad. Um, and, and they'll try to convince you Jesus is not God, so forth and so on. And isn't it interesting, I was telling the Brothers Before Church, some of the most serious, far-reaching, deceptive religions all start with foolishness that's connected with angels. Think about that. Islam, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, as we just talked about, all of them are connected with angels and revelations from angels. And if you wanted to, you could go all the way back to the book of Genesis and begin to see if you could demonstrate or explore the idea that these angels are actually the fallen angels who are showing these and communicating these wicked uh, lies that originate or that go on to propagate into false religions. 
It very well could be the fallen angels that are doing that. But that's for another time, right? Next week when we come back, we're going to begin looking at the scriptural support. And the introduction next week is going to be beautiful because it shows us that the writer demonstrates from Scripture, nowhere else, not some tradition, not what, from Scripture, the proof of the fact that he is asserted today in verse 4. And just that thought of looking at that is going to encourage us in our walk with the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, as we conclude our time together in your word, um, I pray, oh God, that you would um, just foster within our hearts, foster within the depths of our soul, a greater appreciation and love for the revelation that you have shown us as the church in thy Son. Father, we are humbled that your Spirit has communicated to us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done upon the cross on the behalf of our sins. We are, Father, humbled by what we see in the promises of the future fulfillment of what Jesus will accomplish at the end of these last days in which we are in, Lord. I pray, O Father God, that You would take these things and You would equip the saints. We have talked, I think, to a great degree today uh, about just the superiority of uh, Jesus over the angels and how that practically applies in the dark age in which we live. Help us, O Lord, to be continuous faithful witnesses of the true gospel of Jesus Christ that is intimately connected with His person as being both God and man. O Lord, I pray that if by Your providence our paths would ever cross with an opportunity to witness the truth of Jesus, that You will bring to the minds and the ears or the minds and the mouths of Your people today what we have examined and considered in Hebrews 1 through 4. Help us, O Lord. Help us, I pray, to be faithful in the age in which we live. Blessed be your holy name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.